Welcome to Stories of Growth, a series of conversations with modern day business leaders who share their stories of growth and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm William Rowe, founder and CEO of Protein. I've been helping businesses grow for over 20 years and I've always been fascinated with the people behind these businesses, where they've come from and what drives them forward. One thing is don't panic. It sounds very logical, but there are just moments you, or I felt so incredibly alone, like staring at the ceiling at 3 a.m. Like, how am I ever going to solve this issue? Or how am I ever going to make pay next week? And now I realize that don't panic, stay calm. The moments when it, when it seems the worst are the moments that you think of something that benefits your company as a whole. You become a better company or a better leader or a better entrepreneur. My first conversation is with Mark DeLang, who's founder and CEO of Ace and Tate, an eyewear company based in Amsterdam and rapidly growing around the world. We've worked with Mark and his team over the last few years, and I've always loved their beautiful products and non-traditional approach, be it the simple, affordable designs, direct-to-consumer model, or their creative fund that reserves a percentage of sales to commission creative projects. This was recorded in our studio in London, I hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome. Very happy to have uh, Mark from Ace and Tate here and celebrating five years. Congratulations, Mark. Thank you, Will. So why don't we start with those first five years from day one to where we are now? Um, you know, is it what you expected? Is this is this the plan that has come to shape in its perfect fruition? Or, you know, did it start with a slightly different ambition? Oh, that's a loaded question. Uh, <laughs> um, I think in broad strokes, we've executed on what we wanted to achieve. Um, but the way we've got there, or the way we've gotten to this point has been very different than what I thought it would be. So every, basically in broad strokes, everything takes twice as long and is twice difficult you expect it to be. Um, and the challenges for challenges with growth um, have been very different than what I had expected. So for instance, in the beginning, as a company, and we were very focused on selling this product. And would people like our business model? Uh, would people be interested in the brand? And Nowadays, the challenge are more, is the company set up for this type of growth? Can we actually deliver? Um, so it's a different beast now than it was in the beginning. So it's recognizing, establishing a brand, establishing a business to really scaling and growing a business. Yeah, so these days, um, creative reports to me, something I love to be involved with. I love to do the brand stuff. But it's also building a management team. Uh, managing company, we're 420 people now, 27 stores in seven countries. That's it's great. just vastly different from five people at one office. The communication, for instance, used to be turning down the music, and we had this rule that you'd always stand up on the table, say whatever you had to say, and then turn back on the music, and everyone would know. But nowadays, communicating to all these people across different countries is a very different beast. Sure. Uh, so it just becomes way more complex with new challenges. But still, it's a lot of fun. Um, like stuff like supply chain, for instance, making sure that you consistently deliver your products on time 
is very different when you sell a couple of pairs a day, or maybe nothing a day, like in the beginning, and now we sell a thousand pairs a day. So it's very, it's just different, different beast. And all good problems, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and also, I, it keeps it interesting because um, I'm able to grow with the company. So for me, it's a learn, new learning experience every day, or every phase. So just bringing it back to the beginning and yep. the inception and the whole idea of Ace and Tape. I mean, just give us that founding thought, that you know, problem you wanted to solve that gap in the market like what was the what, what's the you know the, what was the creation story okay so the idea is i wear glasses um and i was with my girlfriend now wife in new york and we would pass this store selling oliver people's beautiful brand every day um and the last day it said sale so i was on my way to the hotel uh to pick up the bags to go to the airport and i wandered in um bought a pair of frames without lenses. It's like $200, I think. Um, and then I came back to the Netherlands and I put in lenses. And I noticed that the process of buying glasses was just no fun. It was very difficult. It was intransparent. Why I was paying so much money, although I have a very low prescription. Um, I was upsold every step of the way. I needed a coating for this and for my eyes. I needed that lens and it was all more, it became more and more expensive. And I ended up paying like 400 euros and it was took like three weeks to get my glasses. And I just didn't get it. And it seemed a relatively straightforward product. Um, so I started researching the market and saw that it wasn't necessarily, wasn't necessary to uh, be so expensive. And it could be offered way more cheaply, way more fast, um, and also in a way more fun way, uh, while still offering a good quality product, great service, um, and a way more lighthearted experience buying it. So, fixing a problem. Yeah. And no experience previously in business, running your own business, no. starting a business? No, my family comes from the shoe business. I brought Grenson shoes to Holland, for instance, so I grew up in, in shoe factories, so I have some affinity with a style product, um, but no experience whatsoever running my own company. Organize some parties, but that's about it. <laughs> different sort of business. Very different. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, business plan, funding, like where from that concept of here's a problem that I want to fix, where did it go next? Um, so I had this rough outline of a concept, Started pitching that to some friends, just people around me, and people seemed to be interested, seemed to be into the concept. Uh, then I started to draw up some kind of a plan and started pitching that to some people around me who invested, um, who were investors. Uh, and basically all of them told me, if you decide to re-pursue this, let me know, and I'd love to uh, learn more about it. So I started doing some more research, uh, research about factories, how do glass get made, how does the industry work, um, and then decided really to go for it and raised the first round from those initial people I talked to. Okay. And from there on, we started building the company. I had the collection designed by then, but I need money to finance it to actually buy the frames. Uh, so about six months before we launched, we launched in June, 
uh, in January, late January, we got funded, 2013. And that first round of funding, how much? Uh, 350,000 euros. Okay. And the story of the name, Acetate, Ace and Tate? Yeah, I had like in my apartment, there were like uh, pin boards everywhere with like names and different ideas and drove my girlfriend crazy. It was like all kinds of stupid names that had you know, something that was really thought up and just felt like marketing speak. And then I was sitting behind my desk really frustrated one day. I was just looking at the product, at the pair of glasses, and it was like acetate. And I kind of saw the name, like acetate, acetate. Sounded fun. And yeah, that was it. Done. Done. Uh, you talk about your family's history in, uh, in shoe manufacturing, shoe sales. Yeah. Has that influenced the importance of retail to the experience of Ace and Tate in terms of where you're visible, the experience of trying it on? Because from a consumer point of view, you know, you mentioned fun. Fun feels like it is throughout the brand mm -hmm. in every touch point. Um, but specifically on, on retail, wh where does that sit in terms of your importance and approach? Um, I never really thought about the link with my family, to be honest. Um, my uncle had stores as well, and he used to work for him in summers, so I kind of understood a bit about retail. And what I started to understand once we'd launched the business is that if we would have a real physical touch point, we would be able to be able to provide far more uh, far more service and far more personal service. And glasses are a very personal uh, personal thing, personal instrument. Um, so that led us to... And way, and way more than shoes, for example. Way more maybe than even shoes. You know, you yeah, it's one or two pairs of glasses, yeah. but you might have... 30 pairs of sneakers, yeah. Um, so that got me thinking. And then we, we had an office in central Amsterdam and people would think that it was a store. So people would wander in like, during the day. Expecting a store. A ground floor, like retail. No, it's like a what, one, two floors up the first door, uh, first office, and the second office, one floor up. And on a Saturday, it would just be rammed with people. We'd be sitting there behind the computers going, <laughs> uh, okay. Um, and that led us to uh, renting the first pop-up store, and that led us to some tests. And then we got offered a location three years ago, and it was way too expensive, and we, we knew jack shit about retail. We just thought, well, let's do it. Because... And to clarify, the whole concept, Face and Tate, was the direct-to-consumer, yeah. right? Yeah. And just yeah. the cost savings, taking out the middleman, taking out the wholesale, yeah. taking out the distribution. Yeah. So the business was built around a direct-to-consumer online experience. Yeah. So the concept of Ace and Tate is indeed that we cut out the middleman, we design all the frames in-house, work directly with, with the factories, and then sell through our own channels, so either on or offline. Yeah. And... and Priced accordingly. Priced accordingly, yeah. So in the optical industry, prices are high and also very transparent. So you walk in expecting to have three, three, uh, three frames for the price of one and you walk out with one frame for the price of three. Uh, and we thought, why not just sell at the price that it says on the box? Simple. Straight up. Yeah. So coming back to the retail and and trying to get under the skin of this identity yeah. that Ace and Tate has created and that, you know, the tone of voice, the feeling and that 
intangible. Um, was there, I mean, it's, was there a plan for that or did it just happen like that? And, you know, talking about the mixtapes, talking about just the language on the website, talking about, you know, all of the other elements that make up Ace and Tate beyond the spectacles and the glasses. You know, was, was there a plan for that? Mm, not really, to be honest. <laughs> um, we had a plan for the business Ace and Tate, um, but the brand is just, I think, a, a reflection of what we like um, and the way we talk. Uh, and obviously, we try to make things clear and understandable, uh, but it's, it's basically, I guess, who we are at the office. Our copywriter, Isabel, just writes the stuff that she likes to write, and it's, this is the tone of our office. Um, and I think in terms of the collaborations we've done and the way we present um, eyewear purchase, not taking it too seriously, it's just, I guess, who we are. Sure. And that comes through. Yeah, I think any, every time we've tried to do something, it never really feels right. If we try to do something that sits outside of that natural progression. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of that's come from you in terms of music background yep. and love of music and bringing that in as, as it would be understandable. Yeah, so, so I'm, I used to DJ and just like music. Uh, and our, uh, actually our business intelligence guy, he's a DJ Milan. as well. Milan. Yes. And I found out when I had a chat with him the yeah. other day. And we started chatting and said, well, why don't you just do a mixtape series? We don't need to achieve anything with it. It's just us uh, providing a platform to the people we like and working with the people we like. That would be simple. Yeah. As all the best ideas are. Yeah. 100%. Coming back to you and your background, um, you said you had experience or exposure to your family uh, working in, in, in retail. Yeah. But other than that, in terms of, you know, I guess it's that entrepreneurial spirit or that confidence to say, there's an idea, I'm going to do something about it. Is that, you think, from your parents, from your schooling? Like, wh where do you feel that 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 has originated from? Well, in my family, uh, I was the second one even to go to university. Everyone just started their own company. So I never really thought about doing anything else. And I, I like to make my own decisions. Um, the independence is an important thing for me. Um, so I guess that was the reason. And I, I went to work for a, for a boss after university just because I didn't have the idea that I felt passionate about. And I thought if I do something, it needs to be something that I feel really passionate about and something I really want to do for the next X amount of years. Uh, and then this idea popped up and I thought, this is it, I'm going to do this. And every, I, it was never a conscious decision to do it or not. It was just, I know that I want to start my own company. That was it. Since when? Since you were a Oh, kid? like as long as I can remember. Okay. Yeah. So that entrepreneurial spirit was there. I guess my parents just growing up and seeing it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So in terms of that um, path, 
shall we say, yeah. you know, year one to year five, mm-hmm. and do the ups and downs that come with it. Maybe touch on a couple of the highlights and also the lowlights. Okay. Um, the highlights are actually actually quite simple or easy, easy to identify. Um, for me, the highlights are about building a company that people really like to work for, uh, like to spend time at. Um, I really like when I walk into the office and it's firing on cylinders and everyone's just having a good day. It might not always be only fun and games, but you see, feel the vibe that it's everyone is enjoying themselves and learning stuff. Um, that's the moments that I'm that I feel proud and I'm like, wow, this is really something that we're building here. Uh, and I think the low lights are exactly the opposite of that, um, but particularly when we disappoint customers. So a while ago we had a supply chain snag, and we had sold frames that are actually sold out to our customers. So we had to go back to a couple of hundred customers and say, sorry, we sold you a frame that we don't have. And that, that for me really sucks, because it's always been about providing the best customer experience that we can. Um, so we, we solved it, obviously, but that's, uh, that's stuff that keeps me awake. Mm. Yeah. So what's the approach for that? I mean, this is a common problem for a growth customer-centric business, but what, what's the process? So what we did was um, I called up uh, Jordi from the Newadec, uh, illustrator we've worked with, with uh, quite extensively, and I asked him, could you draw me a bouquet? like a sorry bouquet. And we printed really nice cards um, with little text on how we messed up. We all hand signed them, sorry about this. Then we made cases, uh, the eyewear cases, personalized with the first name of the customer that was affected. And in there was a full price gift card to buy a new pair of frames. So they would get the original frame and would be able to buy a new pair of frames on us. And we uh, sent those out and we got Huge customer response to that. Positive. Positive, yeah. Yeah, okay. I think that's entrepreneurship, right? Turning Sometimes turning a negative into positive. Yeah, 100%. And, yeah, and that is I, the basis of any modern business, recognizing the importance and the value of your customer yeah. and going above and beyond. So, yeah, it makes total sense. Any other highs, lows, challenges, failures that have been learned and adopted and scaled? I guess for me, a lot of the struggle has been internally with myself um, because every time I've been confronted with my own limitations uh, and that that's very, for me, it was very frustrating. Um, I'm not a natural people manager, but you need to become one because mm-hmm. otherwise you have no place uh, running a company like this. Um, and, and for me, it's, I've learned not to, let, get, not to let frustration get the better of me. And just like calm down, um, look at the problem objectively, break it down into small pieces and then start solving it. Um, and that was not the way I would approach it in the beginning. I was just blind panic. Mm. Um, so I guess that has really changed. Um, I think something else that I'm proud of is that the vibe from the beginning is kind of similar as it is now, obviously with in a different form, but that we've been able to retain that um, 
that for me has been a huge thing. I guess a, a challenge when you grow this fast is hiring people, hiring the right people. Um, and what I've learned there is like, always hire for attitude and train for skills. Hire the people they could just feel a connection with, who you believe could do the job, and then teach them whatever they need to know. Don't hire one, someone who you think can do the job but doesn't fit with the company. Those are my biggest mistakes. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think certainly running a company, um, it is very much that mindset, certainly a millennial mindset uh, within a modern day workforce and the expectations that come with it. Oh. I mean, led by Silicon Valley, diluted to Europe, yeah. but equally yeah, has its challenges in terms of approach. Definitely. So, uh, interesting. Talking about those challenges, personal challenges, do you have, do you have a mentor or mentors? Yeah, so I started working with a coach um, about six to eight months ago. Was a good, um, he's like a tough love kind of guy. So he's, uh, <laughs> he's a, a very uh, confronting mirror sometimes. She basically tells me to shut up and just deal with it. Um, and I've learned a ton from him. And I guess one of my business mentors is someone who's been in retail for years. He's been on the board of a couple of bigger retail companies and brands particularly. Um, so those are two people I think who've taught me the most. Yeah. And it has had huge value for me because a lot of the problems you see aren't that big, aren't that complex when you have someone to talk to who's completely outside of the day-to-day uh, -day of the business. Um, so I could rec I would recommend it to everyone. Yeah. Mm. No, hundred percent agree. Yeah. And do you mentor others? I don't think I'm at that level yet. Um, there are a couple of guys I, I speak to who started business recently, um, and we, we just chat about things. And maybe I could just share one some of my mistakes because um, they are quite fresh, so uh, that might help. Um, but no, I wouldn't consider myself a mentor yet. No, not there yet by a long shot. Okay. In terms of stepping back a bit and recognizing what's been achieved I mean is there a is there a big plan is there a is there a date is there an exit is this you know a journey is this a destination you know where where, where are we going mark where where, a, where where would you like that's a very very good like question for 5 30 p.m <laughs> friday um, <laughs> let me open another beer for you <laughs> um Let's see. Uh, yeah, of course, there's a plan. Um, but what I've realized is that it is, and this might sound overly philosophical, but that's not, not my intention. But it is about the journey, right? Mm -hmm. um, I would love if Ace and Tate is a brand that's here for a long time, that can build a legacy, um, not something that's here today and gone tomorrow. Um, so I'm just focused on making sure that we, that we build something people can relate to that we have the best product in class, that people are very happy with our service. Um, and I'd love to expand that across Europe. And if we, um, if we succeed in that, and if we keep up this growth rate, roughly doubling our year over year, I'd be very happy. Great, and specifically on that growth metric, 
Yeah. Is that a target? Is that, uh, I mean, how are you quantifying it in terms of setting that expectation? I mean, as the business owner, uh, but also for your investors, for your staff, how do you, how does that, how does that come to life in terms of that growth expectation? Well, we definitely have targets. Um, when you look at an industry, it's pretty old fashioned. Uh, very little companies, very little brands, for instance, are thinking about um, sustainability, for instance, something we are focusing on more and more. Uh, and I believe that the only way to really change things is to have a certain scale. So my goal would be to build a bigger company that can actually change our industry and influence our industry. Um, so yeah, we do set longer term goals. Um, and I, I really hope to become a big European player. Okay. But in terms of those, that growth target mm -hmm. and that we want to double or we want to grow by X percent. Yeah. Uh, where's that coming from in terms of that ambition and that scale? It's kind of, it's very arbitrary to be honest. Um, I think I, I just really enjoy uh, doing this. I really enjoy <laughs> the growth and it keeps really exciting and fresh for me. Um, so I'm, I'm basically pushing myself, I guess, to prove that I can do it. And I guess uh, forcing that on the rest of them around me. Um, While still making sure it's fun. While still making sure it's fun. But I think for me, this is the challenge to, to uh, build this company and to change the, the way things are, things are being done. And I, I, this might seem very selfish, it probably is, but I see Acetate as a vehicle to do all kinds of cool stuff. And the only way to do those cool things is to also sell glasses to finance the cool things. So I used to draw a diagram at the office and I would say, it was like a circle and said, do cool shit with an arrow and then sell more glasses. So it was do, more sh do cool shit to sell glasses and sell glasses to do more cool shit. And that was basically, that's as simple as it is. That's the business plan. That's the business plan. I love it. <laughs> now you the see why people is, do not want me as a mentor. <laughs> <laughs> the question is how many glasses do you need to sell in order to do really cool, cool shit? <laughs> really cool shit. Yeah. <laughs> a lot probably. Um, <laughs> talking about cool shit and the creative fund, mm -hmm. which I think is fantastic. Thank you. And I know is under review or yep. just reposition repositioning that. so maybe just for everybody who hasn't heard about it the concept the idea what it's achieved yeah and then a bit about where you hope to take it in your cool shit half of your circle <laughs> um yeah so the creative fund the idea was we work with so many cool creatives who would have this passion project that didn't really have time for or couldn't find the time uh, to do. So they have to do commercial work to finance this. It would never really play out, so this one thing would never get done. So some names, like who are we talking about? Uh, we worked with Haley from Brick Magazine to finance a really cool, um, uh, really cool expo uh, about Neverland and Elvis fans. Um, I worked with a Dutch photographer called uh, Lucas Hardonk, who did some really, really amazing artworks. Um, and although I really liked doing this, I thought that was slightly unfocused um, and really wasn't bringing anything really new. 
Um, new to culture, new to your company, new um, to... New to, um, I say new to culture and new to the industry because there are a lot of funds uh, who stimulate your creativity. And right now we're thinking about slightly repositioning um, the fund because the idea of the brand and what I very much believe is that a new perspective can drive change. And that's the type of projects that we'd like to finance in the future. There's something, projects that uh, provide a new perspective on something. So, for instance, WeTransfer has um, launched the League of Concerned Photographers, who, in a really cool way, show the, like, graphically cool way, uh, show um, the effects of, um, of global warming and environmental issues. Um, that's the type of projects I would like to do. So it is actually a new perspective on something, and hopefully that will drive the change. So we're in, uh, like in a review process right now, and I hope to relaunch the fund in the next six months. So it's giving it, if I may paraphrase, uh, more meaning, a, a, a stronger purpose. Yeah, I guess that, um, yeah, definitely. Okay, and of that purpose, and meaning, and you mentioned supply chain and uh, obvious implications of manufacturing processes. Are there, that being one area, but are there other areas that you are passionate about in terms of core values that uh, Ace and Tate feel that they are aligned with that you really wanna, you wanna change in terms of that perception? Well, there, uh, I would highlight two things, I guess. Uh, one is, and I'm not allowed to say this anymore, but I will. Um, one of our core values used to be, don't be a dick. And that was just one of the core values of the company. And Google, I'm, don't be evil. <laughs> Ace and Tate, don't be a dick. <laughs> so, I understand that it uh, might not be the complete right wording. Um, but it was very simple. Just treat others or... Do as you wouldn't want people to treat you. It's very, very simple. Uh, and that's something I, I think the company will always be. Um, and that's something I'm very, I'm a bit of a Nazi about. Um, so that, that means that it should be fun, respectful, um, lighthearted, um, and not become an evil type company. Um, and I think the other, as you mentioned, is obviously uh, our footprint, um, which is not an easy issue to solve. Um, so we're taking baby steps in that department. I don't think we'll never be a quote-unquote sustainable brand, but we are uh, working really hard to lower our footprint. So that's in terms of packaging, for instance. We eliminated uh, big parts of our packaging. We um, have been developing a way more sustainably manufactured glasses case. Um, we have uh, organic um, cotton tote bags uh, that we give with every purchase, so you can actually don't need plastic anymore and you can reuse this thing. This thing. Um, and we're talking to our suppliers to see if we can really make um, a better form of acetate. But that's like long-term projects. Better form, a less impactful yeah. form. Yeah, so um, again, the eyewear industry is not really progressive. Um, so I don't think companies have ever thought about more sustainable way to make acetate. Um, 
one of the manufacturers, uh, Italian company, has done something, but they won't release the, um, the the composition of the material to us. So we thought, well, that kind of sketchy. Um, so we're talking to the uh, to the supplier of our suppliers to see if we could use organic cotton instead of regular cotton, which is one of the uh, key components of acetate. But those are all like long-term things. Those will take years and years to, uh, to develop. And that's also for me a reason to build this company to a bigger company so mm. we have more clout with these yeah. people so we can really make this change. There's cotton and acetate? Yeah. yeah. But it's also very simple things like the stores. Um, running them all on clean energy instead of regular energy. Yeah. It's uh, using LED lighting. Uh, it's stuff like that. You a B Corp? We're in the process. Great. Yeah, a big fan of B Corp. Yeah. Um, we're in the process as well, yeah. which is difficult. Different being an agency business rather than a manufacturing business. But as far as I'm concerned, just going through the process, yeah. it should be a mandate for any business in terms of how to run a modern company. It tells you a lot about your own business. 100%. Yeah. Um, there's some feelings of Patagonia in this ambition. Um, and uh, mutually respectful and, I mean, fantastic brand on, on numerous levels. But I think certainly from what I've seen of them is everything behind the scenes that they don't talk about are the most interesting stories. Yeah. And you talk about supply chain and being big enough to affect change and also more importantly, sharing that in terms of open sourcing it and allowing other businesses to benefit. As I understand recently, they've consulted with Levi's to reduce their cotton usage or certainly shift their cotton usage to organic cotton on some of their lines, which from a business perspective of two brands, I mean, it's, I mean, it's phenomenal. And I think the interesting thing about Patagonia is that people respect them more for doing that and they'll buy more Patagonia stuff. And that's, Patagonia, for me, right, uh, reading the um, Let My People Go Surfing, the book by uh, Patagonia's founder, Yvonne Chouinard, was the turning point for me. So I'd never really been into any form of sustainability. just didn't really click. Um, and then I read his book, which basically the manifesto for saying a for-profit company can actually really drive change, mm -hmm. so you should. And that was when it clicked with me, like I have responsibility to do something. It's not optional. Yeah, 100%. And that was what led to us thinking more and more about it. And now I'm trying to challenge everyone in the company, regardless of what they do. One thing is always think of the customer. But the second thing is, can you do it in a better way? Less impact. Less impact. Less damage. Yeah, nice. So true. And that book is great, by the way. Mm. Highly recommended. And also read Shoe Dog. Shoe Dog? Yeah, by Nike's founder. Yes. Absolutely fantastic. Okay, coming to the end, we talking about um, that destination and that goal and the story of growth. Are there any key tips, pieces of advice, things you might want to share to the five-year younger you, some listeners who are just starting out that oh, wish I thought about that at the beginning. Um, yeah, yeah, 
I'd say one thing is don't panic. I know it's a very, sounds very logical, but there are just moments you, or I felt so incredibly alone, like staring at the ceiling at 3 a.m. Like, how am I ever going to solve this issue? Or how am I ever going to make pay next week? Um, and now I realize that don't panic, stay calm. And those are usually the moments when it, when it seems the worst are the moments that you think of something that benefits your company as a whole. You become a better company or a better leader or a better entrepreneur. Um, and I know this is a complete hallmark moment. And I'm very sorry to all of you listening. Um, but staying true to what you feel is the right thing to do always works. Because the moment, any time I've done something that didn't really feel like the right decision at the time, but seemed like this agency is advising me to do it, or that dude is advising me to do this, never works. Because your heart is not in it. And just people feel that. Staying true to your gut. Yeah, just following the gut. No, that's true. And I can relate to all of that. Okay, last question. Who would you like to listen to on our Stories of Growth podcast? I would, well, obviously, I'd love to hear um, Yvonne Chouinard, Patagonia's founder, but that's probably difficult to get him here. Uh, but I'd also love to hear more from uh, Bumble's founder, Whitney Wolfherd. Um, I think Bumble... I'm married, so I'm not a big user of dating apps, but they are really interesting, uh, mission-driven company. Uh, I think they've really uh, succeeded in building a brand uh, around almost a utility-like dating app, which I think is really interesting. Interesting. Cool. Mark, thank you very much. It's thank been a fascinating me. chat. Um, I'd also like to thank Frame at the gym next door for the rumbling sounds <laughs> and the, uh, the beats that you hear behind us. Yep. Um, and uh, this is it, wrapping up uh, Stories of Growth. Thank, thank you very much.